the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week, my guest is Stephen Garvey, the chief executive of Glenvay Properties, one of the country's largest house building firms. Stephen has been in the building game since leaving school at 15 when he joined his father's plastering business. Today, he leads a company that this year has either sold, signed or reserved 1,150 housing units. And its target is to build 3,000 homes a year by 2024. Now, as you might imagine, Stephen has strong views on current government housing policies, the central bank's mortgage rules and the idea from some quarters that you can build a home here for just a couple of hundred grand. He also thinks the cost of retrofitting homes to make them more climate friendly will be much higher than has been outlined to date. It's not all negative. Stephen is upbeat on the quality of new homes now being produced and he offers some solutions that he thinks would help the state meet the target of 35,000 units a year that is touted by many as the magic number to meet demand. Stephen Garvey, uh, welcome to Inside Business. I should begin by asking you about Storm Barra. How has that impacted on, on your business has it shut down any of your construction sites? Good morning, Kieran. Uh, yes, it's obviously had a bit of an impact over the last number of days. We've had to close a few sites, particularly the ones spread around Dublin. Um, our Cork sites are fine at the moment. Um, but all in all, we've been well able to deal with the storm. I suppose we have plenty of pre-warning. So normally we get the weather warning out about 24 hours in advance and then we take whatever action is required from there. So if it's a case of standing down a site, we'll stand down a site due to, to high wind conditions and things like that. But overall, we've, 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 uh, we've braced the storm quite well, so, so we're in a good place. Yeah, good. It's been a year of disruption, I guess. In the early parts of the year, you were closed because of uh, COVID restrictions. Seems like a long time ago now, but I think it was a 13-week period when you were in lockdown. How did that impact on the activities of Glenvay and indeed the lockdowns uh, last year as well? Sure. Uh, I suppose this year, obviously, as you said, it was it was about the the fifteenth of April before we got back into full swing. Um, obviously, we were allowed if if you had uh, social units that were being delivered for twenty twenty two, we were allowed to keep working on those. But the majority of our sites came to a standstill. Um, I suppose this year was slightly better than last year in the sense of all the procedures and the processes were in place with dealing with COVID. So once we were allowed to open our sites, we could get our workforce up quite quickly. So I think actually in 2022, it's, or sorry, 2021 has been easier than 2020. Uh, I think 2020 probably there was a longer lead in time to actually get back up and running. There was more procedures had to be put in place, social distancing, all of those things were implemented properly and a track and trace to a certain degree as well. And how our employees and our subcontractors came to site, all of those things were embedded in 2020. So that was probably more difficult. 2021, I think you've seen that by the construction industry. Output is probably going to say the same, even though the restrictions have gone on longer. So I think the industry adapted quite well to, to those restrictions. Um, and we're probably in a better place now. COVID's fully embedded into the system, the processes and managing all that. So I think we can kind of we, we, we can go on with a, a degree of confidence that we now can deal with the pandemic, whatever it throws in front of us at this stage. Stephen, have there been any COVID cases confirmed on your sites? We would have had a certain number of COVID cases. Um, you know, employees could have tested positive. Um Good, the good thing for us is the track and trace for us, you know, notifying employees quite quickly. And obviously anyone that they came into contact, we'd obviously ask, send them off to go get a test done. Um, if, if obviously they came back negative, uh, they could come back onto site. But overall, it, it, in the construction industry, it hasn't been really as bad as people predicted. I suppose the construction industry lends itself to this in the sense of 
First of all, if you're on a suburban development, you're on a quite a large area of work and it's quite easy to social distance. It's also external work as well. The majority of the work is external. So it lends itself to that. Um, I think obviously the construction industry has quite a he- uh, health and safety is to the fore of what we do. So there's a lot of processes and procedures in place that kind of lend itself to protecting the worker. And I think the construction industry is probably ahead of most industry out there. Now, COVID or no COVID, we're, we're still talking about the housing crisis. How has business been for you and how many units do you think across the system will be built this year in Ireland? It's hard to tell. I think obviously the Q3 data is still only coming through. So we, we had about 14,500 units went through the BCAR system. So that's quite a lift for the fourth quarter. You usually expect the fourth quarter to be quite heavy. There's a lot of things that are at play out there at the moment. There's supply chain issues. Um, you know, issues in getting product into the country. There's been delays on a number of fronts. Um, actually, ironically, up to the, up to the last few days, the weather has been quite good. So it's lent itself to the industry to, to get things finished. Um, but I would kind of feel we're, we're 20,000 units, maybe around that number, 20,000 units plus. So in and around where we came for the last three years, we've kind of had the, kept the number the same. So I think that's quite an achievement for the industry to hold that number where it is, particularly with all the issues we've had to face out there. Yeah, and yes, it's it's well light of the 35,000 that a lot of commentators and economists and experts tell us need to be built every year just to keep pace with demographic movements and population yeah. growth and, and so forth. Um, what's the runway like for the next few years, in your opinion? When might we get to 35,000? Yeah, this is the number. This obviously over the next decade, what, what everyone wants is, is to us to deliver 400,000 units across the nation. It's quite a substantial number. Obviously, for the next number of years, we'll be in the 20s and you kind of hope uh, by 24, 25, we get close to the 30s and scale on from there. I think there's a number of challenges the sector is obviously facing. Um, viability is one. I think housing for all addresses a number of those issues and you should hope that that will, will incentivize more supply to come online. Then obviously, you've got the planning system. Um, that, that obviously we've known what, what the planning system has been doing for the last 12 to 18 months. And I suppose they're going to cause issues over the next 12 to 18 months. If we're not getting it through the planning system at the moment, we're not going to see it come through in 23, 24. So, so there are issues. I think that, I think what I would say is, and I think a number of issues the government have tried to address this, the viability for both the developer and the customer has been addressed to a certain degree. The likes of shared equity will help obviously address the macro potential rules out there. So the buyer can bridge the gap in the sense of the product that we have to build and the cost that we have to build it at and the customer being able to get access or enough of access to credit. That's one good thing. I think cost rental, and we've been to the fore delivering cost rental in 2021. This is an issue that's going to be rolled out of government. Very much, I would see this as a game changer for, for the rental market because you have two elements of what's happening out there. You have an exodus of the mom and pop landlord, which is the biggest cohort of, of landlord in the system. You know, there's, there's up to 350,000 units there that are controlled by individual landlords and they're the biggest landlord in the country, but they're exiting the market at the rate of five to 6,000 units a year. We need to replace them some way. Institutional investment funds are at the majority of their investment is in the city centre or on the outskirts of the city centre, but they're not addressing the shortfall that's happening in Longford, Mullingar, um, these kind of places. And that needs to be addressed. And I think cost rental can help with that into the future. Um, I suppose the other thing, too, is I suppose the fundamental issues out there is like development. Is, you know, we've implemented an awful lot of regulations and standards. 
to the betterment. You know, our, you look at a product that Glenvay is going to be delivering in 2022, the majority of our houses will be A1 or A2 rated. So we've got the highest en- energy rating in probably across Europe at this stage which is for the betterment long term. But there's other things that we've implemented, other standards, you know, our building code for apartments. All of this has obviously caused a lot of issues to understand these regulations, but also the sector is adapting to these. Um, you've got the shortfall in labour that's going to be out there over the next number of years. Um, you know, there's less and less people in the construction industry. You've got an ageing workforce. You know, the average age on our sites at this moment in time is is somewhere between 40 and 45 years. We need to incentivize younger people to come into the sector because if they don't come into the sector, the sector won't become more productive. And ultimately, that will drive up the cost of delivering units across the industry. So all of those challenges we face, I think we're finally starting to see runway. If if you could see the planning reforms that are required implemented quite quickly, you could see us move up from there. But they need to be implemented with with, you know, quite rapidly. Yeah, now we did have a fast track system, the strategic housing development system, whereby um, local authorities were essentially bypassed and a developer building 100 or more units could go straight to onboard Panola for permission. But we know that became mired in legal wrangles. Um, a lot of judicial reviews on uh, big sites, uh, controversial sites were taken. Um, so what what changes could be made to the planning system? That's That's been done away with now. Um, that's coming to an end, that, that uh, fast-track planning um, system. So what changes would you like to see that could maybe uh, loosen up the planning system? I think you have to look at the planning as a whole. What, what exactly does the planning system work from one end of it to the other? And I think I look at a number of things and, and, you know, we've implemented a lot of change over the last number of years. Since around 2017, we've introduced the NPF, the National Planning Framework, and that aligns where population growth will be till 2040. Um, what that has then done has given a, a population targets for each local authority. So say the likes of Galway today is delivering uh, somewhere between seven and 800 homes a year. But by 2040, Galway has to be delivering 2,800 units. Well, the biggest issue I have at the moment is when I see the likes of these the, the, the likes of these targets is there needs to be a transition to these targets. Galway doesn't have the infrastructure. It doesn't have the water. It doesn't have the sewage. It doesn't have the roads. And if all of those aren't aligned, we can't go down and build houses, houses in those jurisdictions. The other thing, too, is it needs to be aligned with um, domestic growth and where companies are going to invest their money and where they're going to put their employees. Because the people can only follow the jobs and then obviously the housing needs to be to be aligned with all of that. Um, I suppose the frustration I have is we've implemented a policy but there's no proper transition. And then what this has caused is every single development plan has now been pulled in to incorporate this. And this then brings uncertainty. And I suppose I describe it to some people like this. You're driving down the motorway. You've got the sat-nav on in your car and you've got the sat-nav on in your phone. One is telling you go left and one is telling you go straight on. The uncertainty of knowing what we're doing is causing issues. So that's the first thing I would reform. I think there needs to be a lot looked at. If we're going to the new system of from SHD to LSRD, I think the reforms need to be the timelines, how quickly we can get into the system, what are the, the main hurdles that we need to hit, and then obviously the appeals data, and, and that we can address what, what appeals are going to be out there. And I suppose ultimately you're seeing some, some spurious claims going through judicial review, you know, claims for, for various aspects. We kind of need to reform this because if we're going to keep doing this, we are going to bring, we're going to be on Groundhog Day where we keep going through this again and again and again. And ultimately, this is just going to keep the entire system down. You know, there's, 
there's going to be no delivery of housing out there that that is basically required for for first time buyers and also affordable accommodation because they're going to be the two issues. If planning doesn't reform, we can't stress this. Like I kind of always look at the system in this practical. If you can't plan it, you definitely can't build it. So we need to address the front end of the system first and get that all properly working. Then we can actually say, right, if the planning system is up fit for purpose, then guys, how can you build a product that's needed in the system? What what are the the the, the drawbacks there? What's holding you back on in, in not being able to deliver? I think if you do that, you can give us some certainty. Then we can plan better. Like I look at a simple example. Some of our sites here are taking somewhere between four and five years from the day they come into the business to the day we can build homes in. Four to five years. Once we get on the site and if we can implement utilities and roads and services, after that 16 weeks, we can turn a product around to give to a customer. But it's taking us five years to be able to do that. That's too long. Sure. I suppose there is a balancing act here, isn't there? Because local democracy um, has to come into play as well. And a lot of those people taking the judicial reviews will, will, will argue and that the plans that are being proposed by the developers are simply out of scale, they're oversized, they're in the wrong, you know, they're in the wrong place, all of that. And, and that they have a right to, to make that challenge and to have their voice heard. Absolutely. But a lot of the grounds that are, are against appeal sometimes are against the act itself, SHD, the actual act itself and, and what, what, what developers are allowed to go in for. I, <clears throat> I think the biggest thing is that like we implement national standards. We've introduced different standards for height, et cetera, et cetera. If they're national standards, we have to align ourselves to national standards. And I think that's the frustration. Which code of practice do we operate under? And I think that's the frustration for a lot of people. Uh, and I know there's there's been a lot of claims against, you know, high rise developments and and developments of scale. But if we know what we're if we know what it says that you can go in for, that's what we should be allowed to do. I think it's when you go beyond that, absolutely there's an uncertainty there who's right and who's wrong. Is policy being made on the hoof uh, somewhat? I mean, the, the height restrictions, for example, um, just came in very quickly. Uh, and we had the fast track planning um, uh, situation come in, the strategic housing development uh, legislation come in, again, pretty quickly. Uh, and now Absolutely. it's gone. It's gone in a very short space of time. Yes. Um, and we've had all sorts of regulations around uh, apartments as well that have come and gone. Um, there's a lot of policy has been made over the past decade, let's say, uh, and some of it contradicts earlier uh, policy initiatives. It's, it, it could be very confusing. As one of the largest developers in the country, we see this frustration day in, day out. Um, very much the policy that could be set today could be changed 12, 24 months down the road. Um, if you only look at the city development plan that's just out at the moment, they're on about removing uh, that there has to be 40% of all Units have to be built to sell units and they want to reduce the height caps to bring everything down to somewhere around six stories on an average basis. And they want 50 percent of a dual aspect. These were all the things that we tried to reform to make it more viable to deliver apartments. And we're just ripping it all up again and, and starting it. And the uncertainty of that just creates to a degree chaos. Um, so I kind of think we need to, and, and you look at it this way, and, and I kind of just scratched my head. I remember one institutional investor was with me one day and we were bringing them around, showing them. So we brought them to the city and got on the Lewis line in, uh, got in the Lewis line in Stevens Green and went out to Dundrum. And in Stevens Green, you're leaving three and four stories. Now I know it's a protected area and all that, but you're leaving three and four stories and I arrive in Dundrum and you're arriving out at the end of the Lewis line and you're seeing nine story buildings and you kind of, the investor scratched their head and says, we left the more densely parted at three and four stories and I arrive out at the end of the stop and I'm at nine stories. 
How does that work in this country? And the kind of thing we need to have, we need to address all this. Height absolutely should be in the city. And I think we've lost an opportunity. Like you look at some of the things that are happening at the moment. If you look at the front of, of the River Liffey and all the buildings that we've built there, and it's a fantastic development, but we had a huge opportunity to bring those heights up to 20, 25 stories. That's where, you know, it's the business district. It's where the most people are working. They're usually professionals. We had the opportunity to accommodate them. We've kind of lost that opportunity. And then you look at some areas and you're seeing a 20-story building going 35 minutes outside the city. Some of these policies you do really question, Does is this fit for purpose? And I think there needs to be height and scale should be for the city centre. As you go out from that, we should scale down. And I think that's where the balance hasn't been found. And you're seeing that. You're hearing this across the country. You look at someone who's applying for, I don't know, a scheme in, in, uh, in say, in Dunboyne or somewhere like that. And they're being tasked with putting 50 to 60 units per hectare. And ultimately, the only way to comply with that density, you have to put a large element to that apartment. And that's frustrating both the customer who wants to live out there and the local community. And then you look at the city centre and we're operating in some some areas and we're operating at five to six stories. The policies just don't make sense. Yeah. And Stephen, you mentioned institutional investors and I had a story last week about Allianz. They were looking at the market here and they've decided to pull back from uh, residential investment because they don't want to be branded alongside cuckoo funds and vulture funds uh, and so forth. And it could have uh, a knock on effect for their very successful insurance business in the Irish uh, market. Are you are you seeing nervousness on the part of other institutional investors as well? I don't think we're seeing a broad-based uh, institutions remove. You know, we've probably seen the capital uh, change in the sense of, you know, two or three years ago, it was it was more aggressive capital that was trying to invest in Ireland, seeking out higher returns. I think it's more broad-based pension funds that are now trying to invest in Ireland. And I suppose what we've seen over the last number of years, particularly on our own transactions, more German-based pension funds that are looking for a ro- lower return. Um, I think obviously there's there's so much talk in the sector at the moment. And I suppose if I was an institutional investor, do I know the sense of direction of what's going to happen here? Um, and I think that's kind of raising a concern. Obviously, there's a political dynamic in the background of, you know, there's a potential change in government down the road here. What policies may they they bring in? Um, and, and I suppose some institutions are kind of questioning, you know, and, and this is the biggest thing we have to recognise in Ireland. Capital can move very quickly. It can change its jurisdiction very quickly in the sense of it looks at Ireland and says, I don't want to invest in Ireland anymore. I'm going to a different jurisdiction. And once one moves, they all tend to follow. Um, and, and I suppose that's a big thing. We've got to balance that. And if you look at what Ireland needs, we need somewhere between 15 and 16 billion euros of credit to build every year here. The Irish government are going to put somewhere between four and five. The domestic banks and the alternative lenders will do another three or four. But there is a big shortfall that needs to be made up there. And it has only been made up by the institutional investors. And if you remove institutional investors from the market today, well, a lot of developments that are in the city centre and that are those high-rise apartments simply won't get developed or we'll have to find another alternative funder to help build them because that is going to be an issue going forward. So I think it's it's certainly I get the sense when I talk to them, they're feeling that, you know, we just need to watch this space more closely. Is Ireland as friendly as it once was? And what does the future hold? So they're very much watching this space. And I think it's very much, you know, it's in everyone's interest if those people suddenly decide Ireland is not not there to be invested in anymore. We are going to see sites not being delivered and it's going to make the lift of, of delivering more accommodation because 
ultimately the only way to solve this problem is, is provide more accommodation. This is not just a first-time buyer's crisis. This is not just around. It's across all tenures we need to, to, to provide accommodation. And that's across multiple sectors. And institutional investors do play a vital role in that. Yeah, sure. Now, you mentioned a potential change in government. I presume you're, uh, you're, you're thinking of Sinn Féin there, who are riding high in the polls at the moment. And we're a long way out from an election, obviously. But if, if that poll performance were to translate into the general election, then they would, be, uh, they would be leading the next government, you'd have to think. So how would you feel about Sinn Féin in government? And what do you make of their housing policy? Um, I suppose when I look at it, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are you do find skeptical. And I suppose for a, a big argument, Sinn Féin, and we've seen them across uh, where, where we've had to deal with them in local authorities, the likes of DCC and their arguments about delivering housing and the cost that they can provide it for is completely skeptical. And I kind of look at the micro the micro crisis that's in Donegal at the moment. And, you know, we're being told by Sinn Féin representatives, oh, we can build houses, we should be able to build houses for 200,000 euros. But when it comes to Donegal, uh, houses are going to cost up to 420,000 to replace or rebuild. Um, it seems sometimes a double standard for the sector. I think ultimately for us and very much where we would feel that uh, what we're there is we're a provider or a producer of homes. Full stop. We're not a land speculator. Yes, we have land in the system. Land, as I just said, takes a long time to bring through the system. Um, so I kind of think whoever comes into power ultimately has to find solutions to provide as much housing as possible. I think the current government and what I see is has very much committed vast sums of capital now to provide social affordable housing as well as cost rental. The effects of that won't be seen for the next two to three years because simply housing is a slow process to deliver. From the day you plan it to the day you deliver, you won't see results for the next two to three years. I think ultimately someone needs to find a solution. I think what, what might happen is how bad will it be when Sinn Féin, if they did come to power, how bad will it look and what kind of reforms they would do? Um, but I very much think that for our business, and you look at what we deliver across the board, the average sale price or below sale price for us is 350000 We are very much at that affordable end of the market, very much concentrated where the largest way the buyer is, and very much a national-based builder as well. We, we operate in multiple jurisdictions. So I think we're the solution, not the problem. I think pitting private against public is not, is not going to solve this crisis. And I kind of think back and I've looked at this closely myself and, and how our business has evolved. And I kind of my, my own dad worked in the sector to start out and he was he was in construction sites in the 70s and the 80s. And I suppose when I look at when I joined the construction sector over 20 years ago, there was a lot more of me available to come out, do the jobs, um, you know, deliver housing. But that has been shrinking on an ongoing basis. And if you just go back you know, people talk about, uh, and a lot of people, um, academics talk about, well, we were able to deliver a lot of housing, housing, direct house building in the 70s and 80s. Yes, we were, but we had a very large proportion of the population that moved into the construction industry because it was actually only the real industry that was out there for the, to provide work. Ireland has completely changed over the last 20, 30, 40 years. We're now an extremely educated workforce. Any person who does their leaving start today, goes to college, ultimately potentially ends up working for an IT company. They don't end up working out in a construction site. So the workforce has consistently been reducing. And that's what we have to recognise. The cost of building the unit today is a lot more expensive than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. That's due to the regulation changes that we've implemented, but also the diminishing workforce that we've out there. And if you look at our wage rates 
uh, across Europe. We pay one of the highest wage rates in the construction industry. We're ahead of most most jurisdictions. So we've got to factor that in. And thinking that we can produce this house for, for or this home for a much lower cost, that's simply, you know, foolish economics. Stephen, maybe we could just break down the costs of building a home. Let's take your sort of typical three-bed semi. How much would it cost you to build that? It varies. The biggest variation, and, and we've been astonished by this, is um, if you look at uh, all the things that we've to factor in. If I look at what we've been doing in the land market for the last two to three years, the average cost of our plots now, as represented as a plot cost of the end product, is now less than 10%. So if we're selling a home for, say, a net of VAT, 300,000 euros, the plot cost is 30,000 or less. So it's not in the land cost, and this is a, an argument I consistently hear, that it's the land cost of driving house prices. Absolutely not. The biggest element that we see is infrastructure. So when we go onto our sites and we have to put in our roads and our utilities, our infrastructure costs can cost anything from 250,000 an acre up to 500,000 euros an acre. And this is where we have to bring in infrastructure. The likes of Irish water have to upgrade sewage treatment plants, have to upgrade pumping stations. All of that infrastructure we have to put in place. And then I suppose there's a number of factors. Like the superstructure of the unit hasn't really changed. It's all the others that are around it. You know, now we have to take in where the normal rule was that we provided 10% part five. Into the future now, we're going to have to provide 20% part five. So ultimately, that has no land cost and it, it contributes about a 7.5% margin is all that we're entitled to making. But we have to factor that into our risk when we're evaluating the site. So you look at it and you kind of say, it's not the land, it's actually just simply the amount of money you have to spend to get infrastructure into your sites, then the pure management of your sites, the standards that we implement, the BCAR system, um, all of those things have to be factored in. And when you break it all down, land represents a small piece of it. And then the profit margin that developers, like developers will not get funding or finance out there if you are not at a minimum of 15% gross margin. If you don't have that margin profile, no funding will be, will be given to site. And when you think about it, 15% gross, you then have to take out your operating costs and then you have to take out your financing costs. So the average builder out there is probably operating at around a 5% net margin. And they have to take all this risk. And if you look at CPI just for the last 12 months, what that has done out there, CPI has probably moved at somewhere between 6 and 10% for the industry. Now, in Glenvay, we have more tools available to us because of the setup we have, the processes we do, the standardization of the product we deliver, and then obviously the factory operation. You know, we bring all of that to the table so we can control our costs much better. But I have heard anecdotal evidence from smaller builders out there that they said, what I was building for 12 months ago has now increased by 10%. And you're actually seeing some small builders who, there's one particular project I've just seen recently, and they're building beside us for a local authority. They're building about 38 houses. That local authority is now on its sixth tender in the sense of the first one pulled out, the second one pulled out, they're now down to their sixth. And they're actually going to have to go back out to the market and retender to get a smaller Because all of the other developers, when they look at their costs today to deliver, simply don't stack up to where the, the present market is. Stephen, give us a little flavour for the labour costs involved in uh, building a house. Uh, for example, a, a bricklayer or a, a plaster or a painter, uh, these kind of trades, what do they make? Um, uh, how are they remunerated? Are they on staff? Are they paid a daily rate? Usually, so so normally what happens on our developments is we will have an element. So a typical site will have, 
say on our average site that's producing 100 units a year, we'll have about 100, 100 people will be on that site. About 15 to 20% of that will be management directly employed by Glenvey. There'll be the supervision of the site, there'll be the security, there'll be the general operatives doing bits and pieces on the site. About 80% of our sites are subcontracted out directly to the bricklayer, the plaster, the plumber, the electrician. Um, in fairness, I've seen the trades actually, in fairness to them, they're holding their, their, their levels as very much. But the, the, the SEO rates is, you know, the average for, for some trades out there works from 25 to 30 euros an hour, depending on the skill set of the trade. So, you know, it's quite a substantial amount of money. Um, but look, it's, it's, it's a skill set that's dying out there. You know, if I look at bricklayers today, there's less of them in the system than there was two, three years ago. So, you know, it, it's not actually attracting in the people. And remember, construction industry is a hard industry. You know, it, it's a physical industry. Yes, there's been a lot of change in the industry and making things better and standards and safety and all that. But physically, what you're able to do at 25 years of age and what you're able to do at 50 years of age on a construction site is difficult. So, you know, you can see that physical constraint amongst people. As they get older in the construction industry, they move into different skill sets or, or maybe even into different industries because, you know, it's, it's a weather industry. You're out there in the open. There's a lot of challenges out there. But physically, it can take from a lot of those people. So, yeah, I can kind of see, you know, I always looked at it when I was in it and said to myself, the best days to make your money was somewhere between 25 and 40. Once you got to a certain age, you just physically weren't able to move as fast and do as much as, as you once could. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Tell us a little bit about Stephen Garvey. You left school at 15, I understand, and your, your father was a plasterer. You went to work with him? I did, yeah. So I, I suppose I was one of these uh, early school leavers. Um, I was I was kind of got to the age of 15, Kind of wanted to get out there in the open, uh, and wanted to take on a challenge. Um, my dad was extremely annoyed with me that I left school early. And I suppose what he tried to do was bring me into the industry quite quickly. So he kind of forced me back. And the, the plan was work me as hard as possible for the first couple of weeks and kind of hope I changed my mind and, and back I'd go. Um, I suppose the industry was just kind of coming out of, of that kind of dormant day of the eighties. House building was picking up in the early nineties. Uh, my dad had a very small con- uh, contracting business um, and I kind of asked him, look, I- I'd weathered about 12 months of this. Give me the opportunity. I started to manage it then. Um, I seen opportunities. I expanded the business. And I suppose by 20, I had grown that to over 100 people. Um, kind of got as big and as quick as I could and kind of said, look, at some stage, I wanted to move into house building itself. Um, so I took the opportunity in, in about 2003. We went out, myself and another partner went out and bought some sites. Uh, we built small number of houses, kind of turned it really quickly, you know, buy 10, build them, move on to the next one. And I suppose that was the opportunities out there. I suppose when I look at the sector today, actually at that point in time, I could inter, um, enter the sector and I got the opportunity. When I look at today, there's there's minimal opportunity for, for the next generation to move in because things are now a lot more complicated. Sites are much bigger 
um, the the regulations much greater. So for for you know a, a guy that wants to get up and build ten or fifteen houses today, it's a lot more difficult than it was twenty years ago. Um, <clears throat> I suppose what the ironic thing was, we kind of noticed that things were changing in two thousand and six. That you could see, I, I kind of remember giving the keys to a customer, and they were they were a newly qualified civil servant. Um, they'd been in the job twelve months, and they got a mortgage for nearly ten times their salary. And I kind of said to myself. This is this doesn't feel right, and I suppose that was that was the issue. Then you were kind of seeing a lot of build to rent, and you seen land prices kind of you know there were exorbitant land prices. Um, that kind of was the telling sign. So we kind of scaled back at the end of two thousand and six, two thousand and seven. But ultimately, I had no idea exactly the the the, the, f- the global financial crisis what it would do to the country. Um, I suppose realized pretty much early in 2008 how bad this would be and, and did our best to get out of that. And I suppose from there, we managed our book down quite quickly. We cleared off our debts. But I remember in 2012, and I was trying to raise capital on the ground, and there was no one interested in in, in funding house building in Ireland. So the only options were to go to international, and, and I suppose that's how ultimately teamed up with Oak Tree. And uh, that led to the formation of Glenvay, which you're uh, running today. Uh, and essentially, what you guys do is you, you build starter homes, right? And you also build apartment blocks that that are forward funded and, and get sold on to uh, an institutional investor, a pension fund yeah. or whatever. Um, I'm living uh, uh, close to one in Dundrum that you did um, there a little while back. Um, and those kind of things, uh, it looks a very smart project, by the way. And those kind of um, uh, developments where uh, they're sold on to an institutional investor or a pension fund, it creates a bit of frustration locally, I think, yeah. with people who think they see it being built, they see it coming out of the ground, they think, well, this is my opportunity to get on the property ladder. Uh, and then suddenly, bang, uh, it's gone as a job lot to a pension fund and it's been rented to the yeah. local authority. Do you understand that uh, kind of frustration? I do. And I see it every day. I suppose I seen it. Uh, we did. We actually had another development that was very similar to Dundrum, which was Marina Village. And, and um, a typical example of that was, and I suppose it shows what developers are. Remember, we're a public company. We have public capital behind us. Uh, we have an, ep- an equity base of almost 800 million euros. So we have the resources behind us. But an apartment development, a minimum amount of ground you have to, minimum amount of money you have to spend to get an apartment development complete is somewhere between a minimum of 30 million euros and can be all the way up to 150 million euros. So you're talking about vast swathes of capital required to deliver these. And I just, I suppose what summarizes the, the present market is, uh, I, I remember we were below in Marina Village and beautiful development on the waterfront, high standard apartments. And we tried to actually sell these to the private market. And the two things that came very quickly and dawning on us was, ultimately, the private customer was there and wanted to buy them. But getting to the access to the credit that was required, they simply couldn't get that. And I think that's that's a big frustration. And, and if you think about it this way, all what we've tried to do over the last number of years has actually shoehorned a lot of people into a certain dynamic in the market. First of all, the macro potential rules um, have prohibited people what they can actually afford. Whether that's right or wrong is up for debate. But ultimately, if you're a couple earning €100,000, you are told that you can't buy a house for no more than €350,000. Now, when you look at the rent that they have to pay, they could be paying twice that in a mortgage. So you do question whether this is actually fit for purpose. And I suppose for me, when I seen it, I heard a lot of the people that actually came down to actually buy a unit and they'd say, look, I want to sell my house and I want to trade down. 
but I can't go to a bank to get a bridging loan. They simply won't give it. And we actually had a lot of requests in, into the business here. Was there any way that Glenvay could pr- provide the finance? Now, that was simply a space we couldn't go into. But you can actually see the frustrations out there. And you can see it on the other side. You see the frustrations then with uh, with locals when they see these buildings being built and they're being sold to institutional pension funds. But ultimately, if that institutional pension fund wasn't here, you wouldn't be building this. So you kind of question, you know, which is it? What what do we do? And I think that's the frustration of, first of all, does the public understand what the issues are out there? But what is driving this behind the scenes? And I think there's a number of elements that are are causing a lot of issues that should be reformed to streamline the delivery of housing moving forward. But can I ask you about that, Stephen? Because the, the apartment development in Dundrum, I think Herbert Hill is the name of it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. Um, yeah. When did you buy that site? We bought that site in 2000 and... Uh, I think it was 2016 we bought it and it went in with the business that when it floated at IPO. Right, okay. And it took us, just to give you an example of this, Kieran, I think that site took us almost two and a half to three years to get planning on that site. But when you bought that site, was it your intention to build apartments and sell them individually? Yeah, that was that was what the, that was the model that we actually modeled that site on, was to, to build, to buy that site uh, and sell it to private customers. And just to give an example of, of bank finance and, and what's out there in the market, and this was before we were a public company. And um, basically, if we were to build this <coughs> privately as a developer and sell it to private customers, the minimum we'd have to have sold on that site or of those units, fully locked down and contract before we'd sign, would be 60%. So you'd have to have 60% of the development sold, signed up, locked in, and make sure that you had their full deposit before you'd be allowed to commence because you simply wouldn't get the finance. So that's my point. There is no facility out there to deliver those apartments to the private customer. Now, Glenvay probably has more tools available, but as I was giving you the example of Marina Village, we built the product, we get, we offered it to the private market, but the private market simply couldn't get the access to credit to buy those units. But Stephen, I'm just wondering when that realisation dawned on you. Um, when you bought the site and you had intended to sell them individually, uh, presumably you felt that the economics were going to stack up? Very much, I suppose. We, we, we had modelled out what the customer could get, how much they could afford. Um, and it kind of, you know, when you, do, you did the comparison of, of product that was in the local market, all of that tallied up what, what we, we thought we would get. Ultimately, I suppose, the change in the macro rules had really embedded into the market. They couldn't get they couldn't get customers. I think what we seen them and the big thing that we kind of targeted in the Dundrum area was very much for people who wanted to sell out of, say, an elderly couple that were living in a four bedroom semi detached. Their home may be worth five, six, seven hundred thousand. They wanted to trade down. <clears throat> the biggest problem for them is they couldn't get a buyer for their house, so they couldn't sell, so they couldn't trade down. And ultimately, that was that was probably the blocker in the market for us. Then I suppose we looked at the the different. Uh, the different dynamics that existed and ultimately we did sell it to an institutional investor. We, we, we did that. I think it was the end of 2019. That was the best solution we found. I actually think if we were still in Dundrum today and we were still holding the block, it would have taken us somewhere between 12 and 24 months to sell those 90 units. An institution can come in, it can transact, it'll take the risk and, you know, we get our economics back to the business and, and we reinvest it across things. So very much, I suppose, and this is what I keep saying is there is there is the house buyer that can buy and the customer who can buy at 350 or below. And very much the only market that exists for those customers is um, 
is going to be your suburban housing, your two bedroom, your three bedroom, and a, and a certain element of four bedroom. Apartments, unfortunately, are extremely expensive to deliver. And just an example of this is I can build a two, two bedroom ta- townhouse in, in most jurisdictions and I can build it at a price. To build the exact same square footage of apartment cost me two and a half times the cost. So that's the challenges you're up against. Give us the cost then, typical cost of a two-bed apartment for you to construct. Two-bedroom apartment minimum costs are, are, are ranging from anywhere from four hundred to 450000 And the more urban apartments where you have to deal with contamination and you have to go up in height are costing you €500,000. That's kind of the average cost across the board to deliver, which ultimately for the average customer are out of their reach. And the other thing too I would say is, if you look at the demographics of, of the buyer that's out there today, the average customer that's coming in to us to buy privately today is 35 to 36 years of age. 15 years ago, the average buyer was 27, 28 years of age. Their, their dynamics are completely different. They've started a new family. You know, they, they, they need more space. Uh, they don't want to be going into apartment homes. So all of these issues are going to have to be addressed into the future. Either if we are going to have to keep supplying housing to that age demographic, we're going to have to design product that suits their needs at that point in time. And, and the other thing, too, we've got to factor in is we all now have seen what COVID has done to the industry, to the entire sector. There is potentially into the future, a large element of the workforce will now have to work remotely at some stage. You know, that that flexible working is going to be incorporated. So people where we have to think about this, people actually may need more space in their physical home. And apartments provide an element of that. But if you're starting out with a family, that's a little bit more difficult. So is it the case then, in your opinion, that people in their 20s, particularly in somewhere like Dublin, they're simply going to be priced out of the market? They're not going to be able to get on the uh, on the property ladder? The only way you can bridge it is there is no physical way to produce the product. You either drastically reduce the standards, which none of us want. You remove VAT, which is a large proportion of it. Or you bridge the gap between what it costs to produce the product and what the customer can ultimately afford under the rules that exist. They are the three options. One of, one of those is the only way to actually bridge the gap. This dynamic that it's, it's, it's land costs and it's developer's margin. It's a futile argument. If the industry was so profitable, there would be more operators in the sector. There would be more international money. They've done the numbers. They know how difficult it is and they see the challenges. And that's, I suppose, particularly for the city centre. And, and it goes back to why we need institutional investors in the city centre at the moment. If they're not in there, a lot of those schemes that are presently planned or are hoping to come out of the ground over the next two or three years, they won't be delivered unless it's institutional capital. Because as I said, there is no way that you can bridge that gap for a private customer at the moment. There is a certain cohort that can do it, but it's very small amount of people that can do that. And, and I suppose for them is what actually is available for them to, to buy? Because a lot of these schemes, and if you think about the size and the scale of these schemes, some of these schemes can be up to five, six, seven hundred units. So if you were to try and to sell that to the private market, you'd need to, to, to sign up somewhere between four and 450 private customers before you'd ever commence that. That's some challenge for a developer. Do you feel that uh, property developers are unfairly demonized? I think the sector in the industry has got a very bad reputation. I think a lot of that stems back from the financial crisis and, and where the country was. And, and I can understand people's frustration. I think the sector has completely moved on. If you look at how it's completely changed, 
in in 2005 2006 the sector sector was dominated by private house builders today it's more institutional capital you have the likes of ourselves and other players that are up there in the market today that are institutionally backed that don't have have heavy leverage to to domestic banks so the sector has completely changed i think what we very much try to focus here on glenvay is we realize that and i think a couple of things to the fore is you know the product that we're delivering to the customer today, we're now the greenest builder in, in Ireland at this moment in time. You know, our CDP rating, we're, we're A minus. We're one of the top 17 construction companies in the world. We very much focus on the climate change agenda is out there. It is the issue for this generation. Very much the, the product that we produce is at the fore of that and how we're delivering that. I think the other big thing what we're trying to do is ingrain ourselves into the communities because for us and, and the business model that we very much believe in, we're not in here for two or three years in a, in a jurisdiction or, or a local area. We want to be here for 20, 25 years because we want to have repeat business. So I suppose for us very much the ways we want to try and ingrain ourselves is we are part of the local community. We're there to support the local needs. You know, we support the local GEA clubs, the rugby clubs, the soccer clubs, the various initiatives and very much at the core of the business is trying to show what we're doing as a sector and as a business because, you know, we want the people in that local community to understand we're not here to move out in two or three years. We want to be with this area for 20, 25 years. And, you know, I've seen us, we've, we've done a lot of sponsorship where we've helped build pitches, you know, school initiatives, things like that, because very much we want to ingrain ourselves there for the long term. Are you a fan of co-living schemes? Um, <clears throat> I suppose what I would say about co-living schemes were they were to address a certain, uh, a certain workforce. So you take the likes of transient workers, people who may come in for Google and want to be here for 12 months and they move on to a, to a new area or a new job or a new spec or whatever it may be. So I suppose there was, a, there was an element of a transient workforce that shared co-living could address. I know now it has been shot down. Obviously, it's been changed. Um, but again, I go back to the issue. This is, is not a housing crisis. This is an accommodation crisis. We need to sort it on all fronts. Um, we have, a, and I suppose what I would say is that the next thing that I can see coming down the track is if you look at the demographics of the population, the population is aging over the next number of years. They're going to need a certain kind of housing and accommodation, and it's not out there at the moment. And we need to be thinking about that next change. So I kind of think we need to bring all solutions. And just because there's an ideology out there, this is not right. This is kind of cram living. Well, I go back to look at 10 or 15 years ago, the pre-63s that are all spread around Dublin. That suited a purpose at that point in time. Yes, it, it was some of it was poor standard, but you need to have as much solutions available as possible to ultimately provide a solution for this crisis. And I suppose sometimes there's an overreaction. This is not good. Don't want this in my jurisdiction. If it's regulated properly and the percentage of it that's delivered is in line with the population, then it's fit for purpose and it's it brings a solution. It's the very same as bill to rent. So long as it's not there across the board for everything, if it's there for an element of the population to support that population, it's fit for purpose. And it's the same then with, with private owned or housing, first time buyer product, downsizer product. So long as it's all proportioned, it'll fit, it's fit for purpose it'll actually help us solve the entire crisis. You're, you're a fan of the government's shared equity scheme, which will effectively provide a subsidy for uh, first-time buyers um, to, to purchase homes. But there is a view out there that uh, this will lead to price inflation. Um, so how do we square that circle? What's, what's your take on that? 
Well, here's here's how simply I put it, and I see it in our launches at the weekend, and I see it, I really see it on the Tuesday or Wednesday when we do a launch and we might sell 15 or 20 homes and five people will ring up the sales team on the Tuesday or the Wednesday and say, I've talked to the bank. I simply can't get enough of finance. I have 10% deposit, but I don't have another 10%. I'm renting at the moment. My rent is costing me 2000 a month. I can't bridge that gap. And unfortunately, I can't buy that house. So I'm really talking it from the customer side. If you take the average industrial wage in the country, 40,000 and you multiply it by two for a couple, you get to 80. You go by three and a half times, you get 280,000 euros. Put a 10% deposit that on that, that's 310. The average cost of a unit to deliver in Dublin at the moment is 450,000. Average kind of cost. How is how is the average industrial person meant to bridge that gap? The product, as I've outlined to you, can't be produced for lower costs. So this is the only way to bridge the gap. And I think the frustration that, that I see from a lot of customers is they could qualify if, if they bought a house, say, for on the average price from us at 350 euros and they can get a 35 year mortgage. It probably costs them in mortgage repayments a thousand euros a month or eleven hundred euros a month. But if they're to rent the same product. It's now costing them 17, 18, 19, 2,000. So that's what I see the frustration. And, and that's just their, their circumstances out there. So I suppose what I would see shared equity is it's a way of bridging the frustration that has been caused by the macro potential rules. And it is a good scheme if it gets up and running because it will help a cohort of people to actually get into home ownership, which ultimately, if we get more people into home ownership, does provide solutions long term. Um, so I look. I'm very much of uh, in favour. Will it cause price inflation? I go back to the point. Viability is an issue for the sector. If it's not viable to build, the builder can't build it. And if he can't build it, ultimately the product can't be supplied to the sector. So we kind of need to balance the argument. Which is it? House prices need to be at a level to produce them to be able to make them viable for 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 the builder to build it. And also for the customer. So the two have to be aligned in some way. Um, and ultimately, we need to see how this balance outs over the next year. The sector, and I suppose if you look at the sector at the moment, it's dealing with a lot of issues in the sense of cost, price, inflation. And it's not cost and price inflation that it has caused. This is broader, wider commodity-based things. The cost of imports, the Brexit and the land bridge issue, and trying to bring product in here. And then you've got shipping lines in China and Vietnam and places like that that are simply not supplying product. So all of those challenges out there have ultimately brought more costs into the sector. That's not the sector's fault. It just needs to try and navigate that more and more. So the cost of producing product has gone up over the last 12 to 18 months. It's a funny business you're in, Stephen, isn't it? Because uh, you're taking punts on uh, buying land that in your heart of hearts, you must know it's going to be very difficult to deliver housing product on it that people can afford, particularly in Dublin. Maybe it's not the case outside Dublin so much, but uh, let's let's just take Dublin as as a prime example. Yeah. Um, you you you're buying land, um, that in your heart of hearts you must know you you're going to struggle to produce uh, products uh, homes on that land that people will be able to afford. It's, it's quite some state of affairs, isn't it? I think when you look at what we try to do, and I suppose this is why we're very much focused on and, and why we've made key decisions in the businesses, 
very much what we focus on is that 350 or below market. We very much feel that that's the market that's that's the most viable and that's the that's the best one to provide affordable housing to the market. Um, and i go back to what I say. The average cost of us buying our land today represents 10% or less of the sale price unit. So our land cost is quite minimal. I think long term, and I think this is where Ireland is probably going to change, is that if I look at all the dynamics that are out there, very much land is going to be a minimal cost of producing the product going forward. It's all about how how lean your construction sector can be, how scalable can it be. And I suppose for us, very much where we've kind of focused on is it's all about manufacturing and producing a better product. And the philosophy in our business has been to embrace that really early. So I think a number of things, standardization and what product we can put on those on those lands and then how we can produce that product away from the site. And if I look at just, you know, we went into the timber frame industry uh, three years ago. We looked at it and we said, this is going to be a solution for Glenvate to provide as much housing as possible. We set up our first factory. We've got that production up to almost 750 units this year. We've now bought a second facility Oh, by 2024, Glenvay will produce 2,000 timber frame units in Ireland. We are the biggest timber frame supplier at that moment in time. So we've, I suppose for us, what we've looked at is how do we vertically integrate to make us a better process that can make our processes leaner and leaner? And I think that's very much where we're focused on. So I think, I think the viability is going to be challenged for the sector. I think Glenvay have probably tried to address that better than most. But I think for the sector viability for the smaller builders and the SME builders, I think that's going to be a huge challenge. I think the argument I've heard and, and where I've heard some people saying is we'd be better off if the public built this housing. I think the ironic thing is when I've seen most tenders out there, particularly through the local authorities, they're paying as much, if not more, and they've no land costs. So the private sector has to absorb all those costs and is still doing it as cheap, if not cheaper than the public sector. So, you know, I think that's a bit of a false argument. Yeah, it's a broken system, isn't it? How do we fix it? I think we need to address it on three or four fronts. And I think very simply, we need to look at it on various timelines. And I describe it a bit like the patient that's that's on the trolley in, in uh, the ER department, the emergency department, the emergency room. You don't talk about plastic surgery when when the patient's heart is popping out. And I think that's very much what is frustrating me at the moment when I see the sector is we're looking at 10 and 15 years views of where we want to go when we should address this. And in three years time, we want this done. In seven years time, we want this done. And in 15 years time, we want this done. And that's very much the way we should do it. And you have to take it from the front to the back end. How do you make sure that the customer can buy the product that we can produce? And how can you make sure that the product can be there for what the customer needs? That solution should be incorporated and very much look at the front end of it. How do we need to bring the solutions? I'm not asking to reduce regulations. I'm not asking to reduce standards, but we can amend things to make things better. Like if you look at it this way, there's elements and parts of the city. And this is just a, a perfect logic sense of if you look at parts of the city like Stony Batter or parts of Ball Bridge, where there has been 70 and 80 units per hectare in density, and it's two-story housing. And yet we can't incorporate that design when we go out and we look at a, you know, a greenfield site and we're saying we want you to put 50 units to the hectare, 
but you now have to build five and six story apartments in that location. We know there is no customer for that for that product, but we're being forced into build it. This doesn't make sense. Whereas if we simply amended some of those standards and regulation, we could now deliver more affordable housing. And if you go, like I often look at some of the counterparties that come here to Ireland and they want to make a difference. And, you know, you look at some of the German players who really provide that affordable rent and they can't get their head around the standards that are required. And they're saying, this is why things are so expensive. Look at the quality that you have to provide. And then you're asked, so why can't you provide it for a cheaper cost? Like the two don't balance. We need to genuinely ask ourselves, what do we want to provide and how much do we want to pay for? It? And that has to be aligned then. We can't build a Mercedes Benz and then expect to charge, you know, a, a Volkswagen. It, it just doesn't work. That's not how it works. So the two have to be aligned. And I would very much look at it. We need a three-year view and everyone needs to get behind it. We need a five to seven-year view and then a 15-year view. I think we've tried to incorporate so much regulation and so much change. And, and I de we describe it this way in the business. It's a bit like a relay runner that's running, you know, you've got four relay runners running 100 meters. And at every 100 meters, you're meant to pass the baton over. So the first guy that gets out of the block, he runs clockwise. The second guy runs anti-clockwise. The third guy runs clockwise and, and vice versa. And no one can pass the baton. And I think that's how the sector is presently structured. So we need to streamline all that to make it much easier, much clearer. And then the sector can get on and deliver. But we need to have a grown up conversation about this. Housing is expensive. The rates that we pay our people is expensive. So we can't shrink this overnight. So we either accept this and put the, 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 the incentives in place or, or the money behind this to accept that, look, if someone's building an apartment in the city for 450,000 euros and the customer under the present rules can only get 350,000, someone has to bridge the gap. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, let's conclude maybe on a climate change note because it's the topic uh, of the day, as it were, um, following the COP26 summit in Glasgow. One impact um, or how is housing stock going to have to uh, develop in the years ahead to meet our climate change targets? And what's that going to mean for the the, the price of a house? Yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be very interesting. Um, I think for for Ireland as a whole, and I suppose it's building regulations, and I kind of compare us to our nearest neighbour. Like the average house that we're producing in twenty twenty two in Glenvay is either an A one rated house or A two. Um, if I look at our UK counterparties, there may be four or five, six standards behind that. So they have a huge, they have a huge amount of space to make up. Now, the ironic thing is they're going to be judged from a lower standard. I suppose for Ireland, because our standards are so high, it's going to be interesting how far we can move it on. I think very much, and, and the ways we've looked at this is, first of all, we need to do an audit of, well, what do we produce? What is the effect of it? And kind of, I suppose very much that's what we've done in the business today is, you know, we've done our disclosures. That's why we've such a high rating. So we've set out the principles. Well, this is where we are. So we haven't put science-based targets behind it yet, but we will do that over the next number of years. I suppose for the product that we produce, you know, it, it is going to be an issue for the entire sector. What cost is this going to apply? And I kind of look at it. Um, if I look at the cost of the utility cost of the house that we build today and an A-rated one, A-rated one house probably costs somewhere between 1200 and 1300 units or 1300 euros to heat and electricity that house for a 12 month period if i look at a house that was built 15 years ago it could cost you 2000 2200 so 
that embedded value is in the new product that we're building today. I think the bigger cost is how much is it going to cost to retrofit some of the stock that exists. And I've heard quotes out there of some people are saying it's going to cost us 35 to 50,000 euros. I think if you're to do it properly, it's going to be somewhere between 60 and 70,000. And then you have to ask yourself the question is, is this viable to retrofit? Because ultimately retrofitting a secondhand house, it will not be as good as a new quality product today. I think the bigger issues are, and I know there's been a lot of things, but I think there's an opportunity for Ireland is, you know, we all want this urban compact growth, but is there an opportunity with, and if you think about it this way, every car that's going to be on the road in the next five to 10 years is going to be all electric. There's an opportunity that the electric charge for that car can now come directly off your house. So there's a way that we could actually use this to our benefit. And I think that's where the opportunities we really need to look at. What are the opportunities to actually, can we make the housing that we're producing better for the climate, but also make it more efficient to produce it? And that's where the opportunities could be that could line the front. And I suppose for Ireland is too, is because of the economy we have today, it's become so professional, so digitalized. You know, our workforce can be, it doesn't all have to be in the city centre of Dublin. It can be across the board. And that's where maybe the opportunities. And we have invested a lot of money in infrastructure. We should use that infrastructure now, come to the benefit of what we want to do going forward. There is a lot of challenges. And I suppose for us, it's a global challenge now. It's not just Ireland's challenge. It's a global, it's a global challenge. Stephen, that's quite shocking. Up to 70,000 euros to retrofit your house. I looked at one recently and I kind of, I remember was, I was comparing a house that we build today, a standard house that we built today. And I'd done the comparison. I got the guys to do up a costing. You change your windows, you do your insulation, your insulation in your floor, your heat pump, your plumbing system. And we kind of added up all the costs of the whole thing. And we said, this is going to cost 70,000 for what we can produce on our new product today to get it up to the same time. It's actually quite, if you think about it this way, to retrofit a secondhand house is extremely expensive. But if you're to bring it up to the same standards, and I suppose ultimately for the sector, what it'll have to accept is it simply won't get them up there. And I suppose what is the easy wins out there? Like I know in the UK, they're talking about putting in heat pumps and, you know, Ireland has embraced, and I suppose Glenvay, we've been operating with all heat pumps in our homes for the last three, four years. But in the UK now, they've very much just realised they're going to have to put in heat pumps to replace gas boilers. The bigger issue for them is, and I suppose heat pumps in isolation won't solve your problem. You know, you've just replaced the use of gas, but you're going to burn more electricity because the heat pump is going to have to use more power to heat the homes. It all has to be integrated together. It's the U-value in your walls, the U-value in your windows, your attics, your external insulation, your floors. When you combine it all, there is going to be a quite a substantial cost in doing this. And I suppose that, that was interesting. I've seen a survey recently where how much is the consumer going to spend here and how much is the government going to have to commit here? I think the consumer is happy to put their hand in their pocket for 15, 20,000 euros but I don't think they're going to put their hands in, into their pockets for 60, 70 grand. And I suppose that shows the benefits of new housing. The more people you can transition into new housing, the less of that demand will be out there in the future. Do we have the numbers in the construction industry to actually carry out all this retrofitting? Well, you've got the perfect storm. You're, you're trying to cre create housing output and, and move it from 20,000 to 35,000. 35, so you're doubling the sector output over a three or four year period. Um, I think there'll be a lot of demand on that. I suppose where we could look at that is, is there programs that we could run? I think we really need to look at the technology 
um, that can be brought in to help that. But in the present circumstances, if we have to dedicate retrofitting 50,000 houses a year, it's going to put huge constraints in the sector. It's going to put, sorry, huge demands in the sector. Stephen Garvey, it's been a hugely interesting uh, conversation. I want to thank you for your time um, and uh, wish you luck with Glenvey uh, for the remainder of this year and indeed into the future. And uh, perhaps uh, we might catch you back on Inside Business uh, and let's see how we're getting on with that housing crisis. Stephen Garvey of Glenvey Properties, thank you for joining Inside Business. Thanks, Kieran. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks again to Stephen Garvey for joining me on the show. The show was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.